take your Bibles and open with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 14, we're going to go through verses 22 through 36. We'll be focusing on verses 22 through 33. So as we come to this place in the scripture, as Zach preached last week, we see that it is immediately following the feeding of the 5,000. And this is significant because this whole group of texts that are that are placed right here in scripture as God has so perfectly laid it out for us and uh, we don't need to affirm that as Zach and I were talking this morning but it is great to pick out and to notice how God's word flows and what it does and how it points us to his truth but if you look through the end of chapter 13 to the beginning of chapter 19 these are narrative passages that are truly progressing and moving forward Christ to the cross and to the formation of his church. And so as we see this, we see that as he moves these stories forward, as these move us closer to that, he's going to bring in the institution of the church, that it is formed by Christ, because what the Bible tells us is that Christ is the head of the church, and the church is to be known as a community of people who are faithful to God, who are faithful to love one another, who are faithful in forgiveness, who are faithful in service to one another, and who are faithful to proclaiming the truth of the kingdom of God. And this is culminated because it's part of what happens on the Christ of Jesus bringing about forgiveness of sins so that the kingdom of God can be ushered in and the church is to be a picture to the world of what the kingdom of God is going to look like. And so all of these passages move us in that direction. They demonstrate for us the authority and the sovereignty and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Because if you're going to change the structure of worship, if you're going to change the structure of how people come to know God and how they relate to Him on a regular basis, then you better have authority given to you by God in order to do so. Or in the case of Jesus, you have the authority of God given to him as the Spirit of God resides upon him in his humanity. And then you have the power of God as it resides on him in the form of his divinity because he is both man and God fully and completely both at the exact same time. Now, if you want to know how that works out exactly, come sit in my office and we'll talk for a few weeks. But we know that the power of God, the divinity of Christ, that who he is and his authority is being presented to us, is being presented to the readers of Matthew's gospel so that what he changes and the things that he does, we can look back and say, yes, he has the right, the privilege, and the authority to do so. And so these passages are pointing us in that direction and they truly are about Jesus. Don't get this story mixed up and think it's about Peter getting out of the boat and walking on water. No, that's just a side note to the divinity of Christ and who he is and what he does and the authority and the power with which he holds. This story is about Jesus walking on water and showing to his disciples who he is so that they understand who he is and that they might worship him. It's about Jesus making disciples. 
who we know are going to make disciples. This story takes place on the Sea of Galilee, and if you look it up, it's somewhere between five and eight miles across, and it's about 13 miles uh, long, and you you see that it's a, a fairly large body of water. And if you understand not just only in this day and time that large masses of water, the seas, the oceans, bring a little bit of fear and trepidation into the hearts of men and women. If you don't believe me, go to a lake and let your kids play and let them wander off and you not be able to find them for a few hours. I think the worst trouble I ever got into was when I did that very thing. And my parents were searching for me, and a friend of mine and, and myself had decided we were going to go visit his grandparents. And they, li- they lived on the other side of the lake, and we were just going to walk. Well, the fear that came over them was a fear that they had lost us in the water. That was a public spanking that I know I deserved, and it was not easy to take. But I also came to understand that in my own life when at a lake one day I placed my oldest daughter into a kayak and she was paddling around the lake and the wind came up as it does with the disciples here. And I'm chatting and carry on a conversation. The next thing I I know as I look up, I can barely see her. She was on the other side of the lake. And I know that she can't get back to me. And it brings fear into your heart. It brings trembling into your soul, knowing that something might happen to us. So we have these same fears. We have these same thoughts when it comes to the oceans. It's some of the most unexplored, uninhabited places of our planet. And we don't know what to think or to make of them. But this story of Jesus walking on the water and growing his disciples as he disciples them throughout his life with them takes place there. And you understand the fear that comes about them as all of these things happen. Stand with me as we read the text today. The Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to a land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might not only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. You may be seated. I'm going to do something a little bit different and we're going to deal with the end of this text before we get back into the heart of this passage. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's going to come to his disciples, and he's going to heal their fear. Then he's going to come across the Sea of Galilee to the land of Gennesaret, and he's going to heal many who are afflicted with many things. The fame of Jesus at this point, and there's significance to this going back to verse 22, has spread already pretty far and pretty wide. Do you notice at the end of this, it says that they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. Now, what does that conjure up? What does that make us think of when we hear those words of someone touching the fringes of Jesus' garment? Well, it should, in your mind, take you back to Matthew chapter 9, where the woman with the issue of blood sneaks up behind him in the crowd and just touches the fringe of his garment and is made well. Clearly, this story of what has taken place, clearly the power and the authority of, that Jesus has has been demonstrated and taken and made clear to people, not just where he was, but in a number of other regions. And people are hearing about who Jesus is. You know, word of mouth is a powerful tool. Word of mouth can make things spread like gangrene, can it? It can set, what James tells you, the tongue can set something on fire that is so hard to put out. Word of mouth can be used for good and for bad. But this was used, the word of mouth here was being used to proclaim what Jesus was doing and the healing that was taking place and how it was taking place. And he was becoming famous. He was becoming well-known that so that when he and his disciples came to a place, the men would say, hey, that's Jesus. Go get all the sick people and bring him to him because he can heal them. And we know that many of these people came, and they came and received true faith in Jesus. And we know that many of them probably came just to receive healing. We don't know what happened to them in their faith and what took place after that with them. But we know that when Jesus came in, the people recognized him. They saw him. And they understood who he was and what he had the ability to do. And so as we come back now to the beginning of this text, into verse 22, we're really kind of to set the tone of this. We've seen Jesus again feed the 5,000. That's significant because if you go into, and, and please help, we want you to understand how to make some of the connections that take place through the Gospels, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but also from New Testament passage to New Testament passage. And this story of the feeding of the 5,000 is relayed in multiple Gospels. Well, if you come to the end of that story in John's Gospel, 
what you see is the reason behind his quick dismissal of his disciples. Because what he says here is immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. It's not, he said, hey guys, I'm going to go up here and I'm going to rest a little bit. I'm going to pray. I want you guys to go on ahead to the other side of the shore. I'll catch up with you in a little bit. No, the tone of the text and the idea that is being conveyed here as the Spirit moves the author is get in the boat and go across to the other side and do it now. He's not asking them. He's not encouraging them. He's making them do exactly what he is telling them to do. And there's a reason for this. Because if you go into John's gospel, and at the end of this text in John's gospel, it says that the crowd is trying to take him by force and make him their king. Jesus is going to reign as king, but this moment was not the moment that God had designed from the beginning of time for Jesus to sit on his throne and reign as king. And so if the crowd pushes him into this, if the crowd persuades his disciples of this, so he, in essence, is is protecting his disciples. He is moving them out of the way so that they're not caught up in all of this that's going on. Because if you've ever been in a large crowd, it just gets exciting, and the things that are happening and and kind of the, the things that are taking place become easy to take part in, don't they? Now... I'm going to tell a story about being in Auburn, but I am an Alabama fan. Please don't hold either one of these against me. But I remember being in Auburn on the night of a football game and being out, and I can remember Auburn winning, and I can remember being around Toomer's Corner. And does everybody know what happens on Toomer's Corner when Auburn wins? The the trees on Toomer's Corner get rolled. And how easy it was, even as an Alabama fan, to get caught up in the moment and get caught up in taking part in this tradition that is there and having a good time doing so. It was enjoyable. But we get caught up in these things. So the, the movement and the momentum of the crowd sometimes is too difficult to pull away from. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, go get in the boat. Meet me on the other side. He made them go. Because he is not, it is not time for him to be sitting on the throne as king. And his disciples don't need to be persuaded by the overwhelming nature of the crowd. And he does, it's, it carries about this same tone when it says he dismisses the crowd. You know, he had been very gentle and very kind. And yes, you give them something to eat, let's feed them. And now it's time for you to go. And he has to get a little bit firm with them. He dismisses the crowd. And then he goes up to the mountain to pray. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, has to take time out to spend with the Father in prayer. We we don't know what he prayed about. It doesn't matter. We know that this truly was a wonderful miracle that had just happened, that had pointed to because really who provides food god provides food jesus had provided food now he sends him away because of that the the crowd had sensed something they had seen something significant something special they were going to make him king but no he dismisses him and then he goes up onto the mountain to pray 
You can speculate all you want about what he prayed for. Did he pray for his disciples? Did he pray for uh, the strength to continue? Had it, had it taken a lot of, out of him and he had to go and res- make restoration, restore himself by spending time with the Father? All of those things you can speculate. But what we do know is that he, he did go spend time with the Father in prayer. And it's not just this time, but it's a number of times throughout the gospel that we see Jesus getting alone and spending time in prayer. And if Jesus needed to get alone and spend some time in prayer, what does that say to us as disciples of Christ? I think we might need to take some advice from the Scripture and get alone and spend some time in prayer. And if you'll notice, it wasn't just a few minutes. He didn't go sit in the prayer closet for 20 minutes and think, man, how good do I feel about myself? Let me go take on the world. No, when Jesus comes to this point, he says, because what he said, it's the third watch of the night, or it's the fourth watch of the night. So that's a Roman way of keeping time. There's four watches in the night, three hours apiece from six to six, 12 hours, divide them into fours, three hours apiece. So the fourth watch would have been somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6, and we would we would estimate that it's somewhere closer to 6 because when he comes to the disciples on the water, they see him. They, they can see that there's something out there. Not clearly, but they can see that there's something out there in what's going on. So we know that Jesus spent a considerable amount of time investing in the relationship that he had with the Father. We need to spend a considerable amount of time investing in the relationship that we have with the Heavenly Father through prayer. We need to make sure that we are spending time with Him because what's coming and what's about to take place are the storms of life and the, and the trials of life and the tribulations of life. All of these things. He's about to go and he's going to have to face the Pharisees. He's about to go and have to to face all of these things. He's about to go and deal with his disciples and to grow them and to strengthen them. But first he spends time with the Father. Did he know the storm was coming? Probably. It doesn't matter if he did or if he didn't. He sent his disciples on for different reasons. They came and he knew that he needed to spend time with the Father. We know that we need to spend time with the Father. But if I were to ask you and you had to stand up, I would bank that most of us have spent less time with the Father this week than we did watching our team play football yesterday. Because that's easier to do than to get alone with God and allow His Spirit to penetrate our hearts and allow Him to flay us open so that we might know him and be known by him and that he might transform us into what he would have us to be. But at this late or early hour, Jesus looks out and the disciples are in the midst of the sea and they're there. They've made it about halfway, a little bit over from where they were coming across. This is probably about five miles and they've been rowing for an extended period of time and they're not making any headway. It doesn't appear that this is the same scenario where the disciples are fearful for their life of drowning. Just the simple fact that they've been rowing and working and striving and going all night long and they're making no progress. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I come to the Word of God, it's exactly what I need. Sometimes when I come to the Word of God, it's exactly 
what I need at that very moment. And just to be very crystal clear, I needed this text this week. I needed the word of God to speak into my life and encourage me and to strengthen me and to build me up. As a matter of fact, not only did I need it, I sent it to my wife because she needed it too. Because sometimes you're working and you're rowing and you're striving and you're struggling and you're going with it at everything you have and you know it's the direction that God has sent you to go and the work is slow and doesn't seem like you're getting anywhere. God used this text to work on my heart. And I pray that he uses this text to work on yours as well. The word of God is mightily sufficient for the task at hand. Every time and every moment. The disciples had been going and doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do. And they were making no headway. They were getting absolutely nowhere. And I don't know if you've been in those types of situations. I don't know if even like them, you've been on the, you've been on the water and you're trying to move and the wind is fighting you, the wind is against you, but it can happen just like this. This is not an exaggeration. When the wind comes across the Sea of Galilee, they say that the storms can brew and it can start blowing and it can just increase in speed. And as that boat's attempting to come against it, it's just fighting and the waves are pushing against it and the wind and the drag are pushing against it and it seems like you're getting nowhere. We feel many times the same way in life. God, I know you told me to go this way. I know I'm focused. I'm right here. I'm looking. I'm doing what you told me to do. And I just don't seem to be getting anywhere. We all come to those moments in our life. We all come to those times in our life. But Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. He's not walking on a sandbar. He's not walking on something else. Jesus is miraculously walking on top of the water. Miraculously, God himself incarnate is walking from the bank to where his disciples are in the midst of this lake, and he's coming to them. Mark's gospel tells us that literally he was was going to pass them. He intended to pass them by, to pass by them. Should make us think back to Exodus, back to back when Moses wanted to see the glory of God and God passes by. Make us understand that there, there should be some resemblance of the glory of God in that text, not just him walking and abandoning them. But when he gets to them, he understands that they've been toiling and they've been struggling and they've been working and they just don't seem to be making any headway. And the ESV translates it, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. That's probably a little bit soft in the translation. The Greek would have been one word that, that in that moment Take courage. Be men of courage. Mark's gospel just says courage in the verb form. Take 
courage. Be bold. Be men that have faith in who I am. Be courageous. Take heart. And in the Greek, ego, amen. I am, I am. Clearly, clearly, decisively showing us living on this side of the resurrection that he is making a divine statement about who he is. He is God. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord in the full sense of the word. This rendering, this here of I am, we usually see reserved for the gospel of John, but a couple of other times, and this time in Matthew, We see Jesus speak to his disciples. This is the same thing that when it comes to the Gospel of John, he he refers to himself in this manner when he's talking to the Pharisees and they want to pick up stones and stone him because they understand that he's claiming to be the divine, one true God of the universe. He's claiming equality. He's claiming sameness. He's claiming who he really and truly is. Jesus said, Be courageous because God is here. Don't be afraid. In that one clause, in that one statement there, there's two commands. Be courageous is a command. It's not a request. It's kind of like making the disciples get into the boat or asking them, would you like to get in the boat? No, he said get in the boat. When he sees them in the sea, he says, be courageous. It's a direct command from God himself. It's I. I am is with you. Stop being afraid. It's the second command in that clause. Be courageous. Stop being afraid because right here I am. That's God. That's what God still says to us today. Stop being afraid. Be courageous. Stop being afraid. Be courageous because right here I am. Because when we come to Matthew 28 and he commissions his disciples, each one of us to go out and make disciples, he says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. In the darkest night of the soul, in the darkest moments of life, God is still there. And can we just come to this text and realize that let me just dispel a myth for you. When God shows up, everything gets right. Not according to this text. Jesus showed up. Peter sees him. The disciples are terrified of what's come across the water. They think it's this this spirit. They think it's a ghost. They have no idea. They're scared to death until he speaks to them and tells them, be courageous. It's me. It's I am. Stop being afraid. I am with you. You don't have to fear all of these so-called evil spirits that would have resided in the water. You don't have to fear what the water can do. You don't have to fear what the wind and the waves are doing to you. There's no reason for you to fear anything because I am with you. But even at this moment, the circumstances have not changed, have they? Everything looks still the same to me. It's still the darkest part of the night. 
the disciples are still in the boat rowing away, trying to get somewhere, and they're not going anywhere. The wind has not ceased at this moment. The waves have not stopped at this moment. And Jesus has already said, stop being afraid, I'm with you. I'm right here. It's me. It's not some aberration or some ghost. It's me. You see what he's doing? He's making disciples. You know, he called these men to himself. He drew them and they followed him. He could have dropped them off right there. That's what we've done to so many who've come to faith. We've dropped them right there. But he carries them along. And he's teaching them what it means to love him and to know him. And he's coming to a head and to a point. But Peter looks out. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water to you. Now, first of all, the, the text here should read something more like, since it is you. This is the same rendering we have in uh, Philippians chapter 2 when Paul is really making a statement by asking the question, if. It's really a since it's with, since it's you, Jesus, call me to come out onto the water. And we know that as we've read the scriptures that Peter's kind of this bold, brash, audacious, outgoing individual who is just as likely to stick his foot in his mouth as to reach out something of the gospel to you, right? And who, who can blame him? What would be more natural for a fisherman who had made his living on the sea to look at Jesus miraculously standing on top of the water in the midst of the storm and for him to say, I want to go out there with you. Let me join you. Let me come to you. If Since that's you, Jesus, call me to come. I know I can't do it unless you want me to, but call me out of this boat. Allow me to get out of this boat and to walk with you. Jesus says, come. And that's exactly what Peter does. Steps over the rail of the boat, standing on top of the water. Now that's a fisherman's dream, isn't it? Be able to go anywhere he wants and no worry about boats or anything else, just do what he wants to on top of the water. But what Peter failed to do was to maintain focus because remember the circumstances of life had not changed for Peter. The wind is still blowing. The waves are still against him. He is still in the middle of the night, and he's been working all night, and he's tired. He says he sees the wind, and we know you can't see the wind, but we can see the results of the wind, can't we? In other words, he understands, and he, instead of focusing on Jesus, he gets a side glimpse of the waves and the storm, and his focus is drawn from his Savior to the things of life and to the troubles and to the trials that are around him, and he begins to sink. Well, there's a couple of things you need to see about Peter. Number one, he was brave enough and willing enough to get out of the boat and go do something. Sometimes we need to be willing to get out of the boat in the midst of our storm and go do something. Stop wallowing. Stop moaning and whining and crying about the circumstances of life and get out of the boat and go see Jesus. But when we do, we've got to make sure our focus is right. I believe that we can take the gates of hell with a water pistol, but only for the glory of God and not for the glory of self. Our focus better be right when we get out of the boat. 
We better not be distracted by what's coming. Secondly, I want you to understand that when, G- when Peter stumbles, he knows that he has to go back to the one thing that brought him out of the boat in the first place, and that's Jesus. Save me, he cries out to his only Savior. When you get out of the boat and life's treating you rough and you get distracted by the things of the world, come back to your Savior. Come back to the one who brought you. Come back to the one who called you. Come back to the one who raised you from death and put you into life with him. Come back to him. Call out to him. And he is faithful. Still, the circumstances of life have not changed for Peter and the disciples. It's all still the same. When Peter got out of the boat, the waves were terrible. When Jesus reaches out his hand, the waves are terrible, but he's still standing with his Savior on top of the water. What a place to be. Standing victorious in what God has called you and giving you the ability to do in the midst of the raging storm around you that is life. When Jesus gets into the boat, then the wind ceased and the waves calmed down. And the gentle, and I believe it was a gentle rebuke that he gave Peter was the same one that the disciples heard. Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt me? Have you not seen me work? Did you not see me feed the 5,000 with barely anything? Did you not see me walking on the water? Why would you doubt that I could bring you along on the water with me? Why would you doubt that I could make the sea stop raging and you could get across? Too many times, more than I would like, I have to look in the mirror and ask myself the same question. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt God's ability to act? Why did you doubt God's ability to move? Why did you doubt Him, who is, I am, even in the midst of the storm? But I truly, as I said, believe this is gentle rebuke from Jesus as he is attempting to disciple his disciples. He's moving them along. He's growing them because if you read the other Gospels, what we understand is that they didn't get it when he fed the 5,000. They didn't get it. They missed it. They They missed what took place of him showing his divinity when it came to that. But at the end of this passage, this culminates in one thing. The worship of the one true God. And the disciples cry out to Jesus, Truly you are the Son of God. They're starting to get it. They're starting to understand. They're starting to comprehend. Jesus, the master teacher, has powerfully demonstrated who he was time and time again. And now, after the storm has ceased, he's walked on water and brought Peter out of the boat. And they've climbed back in with him in the middle of the night. They are starting to get it. 
starting to see that he truly is the Son of God. And they were shocked. Because in the midst of life, in the trials that it brings, and the turmoil that it brings, and the wind and the waves as they beat against us, we come to see him as I am, it's right then and right there that we can be sure. And we can know that he was with us in the midst of the storm. And we can know that he was with us when the storm ceased. And we can know that he will be with us when the next one comes. Because I don't know about your life. Mine's never been storm-free. The next one's always brewing on the horizon. And as I worship my God and understand that He truly is the Son of God, it's nothing but preparing me for what's to come. So that maybe next time, He doesn't have to look at me and say, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You're striving diligently for the cause of the kingdom. Jesus has not forsaken you. Your work may be slow, but if it's what God has called you to do, he's still there. He's still moving. Look to him. He's truly the son of God and worship him. Keep your focus on him Keep doing what he told you to do and allow him to handle the rest. Because he can handle the storms of life so much better than you and I can. Some of us are the disciples who stayed in the boat. Paralyzed with fear. Not willing to step out in faith. Even in the midst of the storm, you can walk on the water with God. But it's always in our hands. There's some of you here today and you're looking at me like you don't understand any of this. When we give our invitation, walk this aisle and let me explain to you who Jesus is. Because you need to finally see him as God. Not just as some man who walked with you, but as God. The one who can save you out of the death that you are in and can bring you to new life in him. How will you respond? How do you need to respond to God's word today? Let us pray. Father, we come before you.